Support for The Interchange comes from Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. Go get started. Visit wondercapital.com gtm. That is wonder with a U, wondercapital.com gtm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. This podcast is also brought to you by Scholes Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of systems solutions for solar and storage. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects around the world. Scholes is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Scholes can make your project operate at the highest level, visit Scholes.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Scholes.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. I'm joined, as always, by Shiel Khan, my co-host and the Senior Vice President of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shiel. Hey, Stephen. We are about to celebrate our 242nd Independence Day in America on July 4th. And what better time to revisit the concept of energy independence? The politics of energy independence are fascinating. It's both a deeply bipartisan and deeply partisan affair. Every president since Richard Nixon has declared their goal of eliminating America's dependence on foreign sources of energy, and it's the reason we have things like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the Department of Energy. But each president approaches independence from a very different political lens. Jimmy Carter was the first to make renewables and energy conservation a centerpiece. Ronald Reagan dismantled that strategy and instead focused on lifting price controls on oil and gas. Much later, George W. Bush focused on domestic oil production, but also put in place some foundational policies to support domestic renewables. Barack Obama, of course, put renewables front and center. Today, we have Donald Trump, who has made coal the centerpiece of his energy policy. All of these presidents have explicitly used the term energy independence, but they all use it very differently. So after 50 years of this, how are we actually doing? Joining us this week is Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of Energy and National Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Sarah, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So you focus a lot on the geopolitics of energy And we've invited you here to help us take stock of how America is actually doing on the energy independence front. So uh, when did energy independence actually enter the national discourse? It's a great question. I mean, so as you said uh, a few minutes ago, energy independence was this idea that was born out of the Nixon administration. It was actually, I think the first time it was used in a major public address was in the launch of something called Project Independence in 1973. And this was a time, you know, it's very sort of, you know, um, notable time in U.S. uh, history where, you know, there was the Arab oil embargoes and there was sort of uh, shortage of uh, gasoline supply uh, in the U.S. context, and you know people remember these long gas lines and the the real idea that the United States was you know dependent upon foreign sources of energy, and we had let that dependence grow. Um, that was really the hallmark of when this idea of energy independence came about, and so. Um, Project Independence set out a goal of, you know, having the United States only use American energy supplies by the year 1980 and set up a whole host of programs and projects um, that have been built upon by subsequent administrations ever since. 
uh, with this idea that the U.S., if it could only just depend on its own energy resources for what it needs to meet its domestic energy demand, that that would mean we would be somehow independent of this foreign influence. Yeah, I've been thinking about it in the context of this administration because I think the term has morphed a little bit. So Trump likes to use energy dominance, right? Or I guess uh, Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, likes to use that as well. But even energy independence feels to me like it means a slightly different thing because I'm, I'm realizing that there's there's two versions of energy independence, at least. One of them is sort of um, lack of dependence. In other words, you know, we still trade as much as we want internationally, but in the event of some kind of a shock to the system, like a war or the Arab oil embargo or something like that, we would be self-sufficient. So that's maybe like the U.S. as microgrid, but for energy overall. <laughs> and then there's, a, like there's another version. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and then there's another version, I think, which is which is maybe, I'm curious to get your take on this, Sarah, like sort of closer to where the current administration is heading, which is like, you know, maybe very little trade, international trade at all. And to the extent that there is trade, it's like exports and not imports. So it's not just we would be self-sufficient in uh, a necessary event, but it's like, even in the meantime, we don't really care if we're trading. Yeah. I think those are, those are really great um, uh, analogies for, uh, for what the difference is between sort of energy independence and energy dominance. I think and it's important because from a U.S. policymaker perspective, the people who have done international energy policy on behalf of the U.S. government for a long period of time, you know, their basic, you know, mantra was, you know, you will not be able to have the U.S. be completely isolated from international markets, particularly for fuels like oil and increasingly for things like natural gas. And quite frankly, if you look at the supply chain for a lot of the energy technologies that we use, it's really hard to find an area where you could have complete uh, independence. And so the security aspect of, you know, the independence argument um, was that if you at least had really well supplied and well functioning markets, you could have uh, that degree of security and resilience that you're looking for. So it's sort of like, you know, not just having a mini grid, but having a mini grid with, um, you know, some, uh, some backup um, capacity or the ability to connect to something else so that in case you did have some sort of supply disruption, you'd have a degree of security. In the energy dominance concept, it sort of flips a lot of that and says, no, we don't, we don't just care about, you know, being energy independent. We also care about being able to utilize energy in a much more overt way to both drive the economy of the United States, which is not fundamentally different from where the Obama administration was, just again, um, maybe not as big of an emphasis on the amount of growth that it would yield and certainly a different kind of fuel, uh, but also that we can shape uh, foreign policy and relations with other countries by um, creating energy supply relationships. And um, and that's it's interesting because to a certain extent, the U.S. was trying to do that before for the last 40 years in its energy policy, but it was building it for the purposes of a shared security, whereas the thing that caused people a little bit of alarm about the term energy dominance is dominance is not the kind of word that you know connotes shared security. It, it sort of means I'd like to win over you. Um, and that's the part I think that has caused people to kind of question the term overall. Right. That's what I was going to ask if there's historical context for this. Is the way that Trump is defining energy dominance different than how we've thought about it in the past? 
yes and no. So when you look at even, say, you know, Secretary Clinton when she's running for president, um, you know, the idea of being a clean energy superpower, right? So there's a, you're not, there's no dominance in that, but it is certainly saying, you know, we'd like to use clean energy as a position of um, geopolitical or geostrategic authority, right? We want this to be a commanding height of our economy in a way that we shape um, energy markets going forward. Now, thankfully, climate change was sort of the common good uh, that uh, that an energy clean energy superpower like the United States could have been driving to. So it it didn't sort of offend quite as uh, much as the energy dominance theme. I think the dominance theme um, comes from this idea that. There was a belief of, 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 in particular, from a lot of hydrocarbon producers in the United States, that the the previous administration was a bit ashamed of our um, our oil and gas production, and it was really quite remarkable. Um, even our coal production was really remarkable, and that we should be using these things. Um, not only just not embarrassed about them, you know, and their their potential climate impacts, but um, but really proud of them and utilize them to sort of reap those uh, sort of geopolitical gains. So, like in some ways, it's analogous to the clean energy superpower thing, where you you know, if you thought that well, we're going to you know help some sort of geopolitical um, conundrum, say for example, Ukraine through. Um, greater energy efficiency and uh, clean energy resources, and therefore we will thwart the efforts of Russia. Well, for this administration, it's we're going to sell a lot of gas and a lot of coal to Europe, and and thereby thwart the efforts of Russia. And so, um, there's always these sort of subtexts of the geopolitical relationship between U.S. energy and and what the U.S. hopes to accomplish geopolitically. The ironic part of it is. You know, most of our energy policy over the last 40 years has really been about trying to disassociate um, free markets and the free trade of goods and energy and services from sort of weaponizing or um, using energy as sort of a geopolitical tool. And so um, that that's the part where I think some some people, especially people in the market, really don't like to see energy used for these geopolitical ends unless they're self-serving, of course, and then sometimes they're okay with it. My sense, this isn't entirely different from what you're saying, but you know, I, I think that I think there there is a, at least to me a difference between energy independence and energy dominance in the sense that like energy dominance is about uh, exerting leverage, right? It's about gaining leverage by virtue of um, you know domestic supply that we can export and then get other countries hooked on it and then have leverage and then exerting that leverage where energy independence is more a defensive sort of protective measure i think that the you know the version of the clean energy superpower maybe is somewhere in between the two i'm not sure it was intended to be used for geopolitical leverage in the same way but maybe it was um and either way it was it was about sort of saying well let's not head into this 21st century clean energy economy with one hand stuck behind our back because we don't have any of the domestic supplies. But um, before we get back to sort of the current state of political affairs on it, I think actually we should spend a minute on on uh, how we got to where we are today, actually how close to energy independent we are now. Because the timing, the timing, as I understand it, um, is interesting in that, you know, so you mentioned we sort of set off on the path toward trying to become energy independent. You said first during Nixon and then during Carter. And then we obviously failed pretty miserably that whole time. Um, and then hit what I understand to be an adhere of our independence or the the peak of our dependence rather around 2005 when I'm cribbing from 
Robert Rapier here, who's written some good stuff on this. Um, when we were importing 12.5 million barrels per day of crude oil and, and finished products um, like gasoline, so that was the peak in 2005. And then since then, it has sort of turned around. So how how rapidly has it turned around? Why and how close to energy independent are we now? So we're much closer. Uh, the idea, I mean, basically is that through, um, I mean, if you look at sort of net energy trade, we're down to, on a sort of economy-wide basis, not just on oil, we're down to, um, according to the EIA in 2017, um, down to the lowest level since the early 1980s. So that's that's good. And then as you mentioned on the um, petroleum side of the equation, um exporting huge amounts of um, petroleum products and then increasingly ever since the ban got lifted on crude oil, uh, crude oil as well. Um, and so uh, we still import a good amount of oil and increasingly the types of oil that we're importing are different um, than they were before. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, not only our own domestic needs, but the needs of our huge complex refining systems so that they can send out additional petroleum products. So, um, so anyway, I mean, the way that we got here was basically the U.S. is producing um, record amounts of um, tight oil, in particular from the onshore uh, unconventional resources that I think lots of people have heard about, um, and, uh, and increasingly able to export that, one, because our economy has slowed down, and two, because we're using less oil in the economy than we used to. Um, for a whole host of reasons, um, both because of the shape of our economy, but also because of efficiency within the transportation sector. Uh, and so that has led us to this position where um, we're uh, a net exporter of petroleum products. Um, and uh, what I think is really interesting is if you look at the sort of net like petroleum trade for the entire U.S., um, it was about... Um, uh, like 3.7 million barrels a day in 2017. But if you look at the gross, which is like both how much we're importing and we're exporting, that's actually pretty high, um, about 16.3 million barrels a day. So what I find is really interesting is we always focus on whether the U.S. is a net importer of, uh, of oil as a proxy for how secure we are. And on that metric, you know, the U.S. is becoming more and more energy secure all the time because of uh, what is, you know, the largest surge in um, oil production in the history of oil production um, is what we've seen over the last 10 years here in the U.S. But, you know, in terms of how integrated the U.S. oil industry is with the rest of the world, it's actually um, pretty deeply integrated now because we're both importing and exporting um, more um, um, petroleum-based products. So both the products, the crude, the hydrocarbon gas liquids, all that kind of stuff. So it's really um, uh, kind of interesting from that perspective that, you know, on the one hand, we are more secure by that metric. Um, but we're also more integrated, which means when you see price volatility, it has a much more complicated relationship with the U.S. economy. And can you talk a little bit about the countries with which we trade the most in either direction now? I mean, the, there was for a long time the notion that the re one of the reasons we need to become independent is because the countries we were reliant upon, Saudi Arabia or wherever it might be, Iraq to some degree, um, 
for a time were volatile and, you know, either sort of enemies of the state or kind of tenuous uh, friends. So what is it now? Where do we trade the most with? So we trade the most with Canada and Mexico and Saudi Arabia is still up there. Venezuela is really... Um, been the country that um, has been the energy security supply story um, of the most importance over the last um, decade or so because of what's happening in Venezuela, the uh, import-export relationship, uh, which used to be a huge issue between the U.S. and Venezuela, has dropped off um, because they're just not producing or exporting nearly as much as they used to. Um, and the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico has changed a great deal because Mexican production is actually declining as well, and their refining capability is pretty low. And so the U.S. is um, exporting more products uh, and more natural gas um, to talk, bring up another sort of fuel-related issue to Mexico. And so that's um, sort of a different relationship as well. Um, I think what's interesting about that sort of relationship um, between the U.S. and its major exporters, uh, excuse me, major import countries, the countries that we relied upon and that were oftentimes targeted um, as, you know, uh, with that with that image of the 1970s and being worried about the Arab oil embargoes in countries from the Gulf Coast, is that really outside of Saudi Arabia, the U.S., you know, hadn't been taking a huge amount of oil from uh, uh, from Gulf Coast countries, it was predominantly Western Hemisphere countries that the U.S. relied upon um, for many, many years um, for a, a good amount of the energy, the oil that we imported. Um, and so it's it's always sort of interesting to have to explain that to folks because it was the things that you know the U.S. sort of you know idea of our energy independence uh, or our energy dependence was somewhat different from. Uh, the reality. What I find interesting now is, you know, the the degree to which um, the U.S. felt like and has been feeling like uh, over the last several years because of oil supply abundance in the U.S., you know, that we didn't have to worry about some of those relationships. Um, and yet, you know, the last, you know, 10 years or so, we've seen a number of um, fuel supply disruptions that, on a physical basis, that were really because of um, uh, disruptions that occurred in the Gulf Coast of the United States, predominantly due to hurricanes. And so, um, one of the things I was just over at the OPEC meetings um, in Vienna a couple weeks ago, and you know, one of the things people were talking about is because so much of the world's uh, sort of short cycle oil. This is oil that can come online in a shorter period of time than these big uh, sort of like offshore uh, oil and uh, gas related uh, production products uh, or projects. Um, they can come online. They come out of the U.S. They come out of the you know Texas area or the Permian, um, and most of it and a lot of it is getting sent through the Gulf Coast refining system, um, and that's its sort of avenue to make it to global markets. Um, and yet, you know, some of the you know bigger supply disruptions that we've seen in the last several years have come from. Uh, from hurricanes in the Gulf Coast, and so it's actually kind of interesting that you know the global oil um, supply system is now having to think about the U.S. Gulf Coast as one of its major areas of potential energy security problems. A quick break here to talk about Wonder Capital. 
So Wonder is helping improve America's domestic resource production with solar. What if you could help in that effort? If you could help businesses across the U.S. go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually? Well, you can, because since 2015, individuals have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform. And these individuals have helped finance nearly 200 large-scale solar projects across the U.S., with hundreds more in the pipeline. If you're interested in helping businesses go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually, go to wondercapital.com gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com gtm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. And speaking of American innovation, Shoals Technologies Group is a company that is unleashing domestic energy supplies. Shoals is a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and storage, and they invent simple. Combiner boxes, junction boxes, inline fuses, monitoring systems, Shoals makes them all with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. Shoals has been serving the solar industry since 1996, and this American company still maintains the same passion for quality and innovation. If you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, contact Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. I think as we as we talk about the terminology here, energy independence, energy dominance, especially given where we are right now, um, we have to throw at least one more in, which is Rick Perry has now talked about in the context of the plan that uh, they're crafting to try to save nuclear and coal plants. He's talked about the cost of freedom. The first time he said, you know, you can't put a price on freedom. And then this one, the set, so, and he was kind of laughed off when he said it first, I think. And then he said it again last week, um, which is, I'll give you the quote. This was on the, the sidelines of the World Gas Conference uh, in Washington last week. He was asked about the cost of this plan that they're about to craft. He said, quote, it's not a dollar figure you can count, which by the way, I should say it probably is. Um, but anyways, it, it's, it's not a dollar figure you can count. You cannot put a dollar figure on the cost to keep America free, to keep the lights on. Um, how do you fit that sort of, you know, I guess that's energy freedom or American freedom. How do you fit that in the context of this conversation? Um, that's a hard phrase to fit in the context of any conversation, but I'll give it my best. Um, I... I <laughs> Here's the thing. I mean, there's a there's a national security imperative in everything in the energy sector. And and that's because things can't run without energy, right? I mean, society can't run, the military can't run, there's all these sorts of things. And so what happens is um, when you have these discussions about policies that affect the energy sector, if you're going to move away from something that doesn't make economic sense or is not sort of the business as usual way of doing something, uh, then then you have to have a, a justification. And usually the energy community likes to think about justifications in terms of cost and economic you know, costs. The national security community has to think about this as well, but they get a little bit more leeway when the costs of the national security imperative are a little bit less tangible. And so I think, you know, when the when Secretary Perry says, you know, you can't put a price on freedom, um, that's a way of signaling that there are these intangible things that they are trying to protect uh, or, um, uh, or preserve uh, that um, 
that will go beyond sort of the normal economic efficiency conversation. And so I think the couple ways that this has come up, I mean, the most traditional way that this kind of cost calculation um, and the price of freedom has come up in the energy conversation has been um, in the on the oil side, which is, you know, the U.S. fights wars in the Middle East and those wars in the Middle East have a cost and therefore you need to unpack what those costs are. And that is the cost of, you know, uh, that should be an external cost that's added to the, you know, the cost of our oil dependence. And therefore, whatever you do to overcome the dependence on oil uh, has to have that sort of, you know, external military cost associated with it. So that's been around for a long time. The one in the electric power side is actually kind of twofold right now. One is um, the on the on the uh, fuel security side of things, which is if we don't have enough. Um, fuel security, like 90-day supply of whatever it is that's um, providing the source of uh, electric power generation in wholesale power markets, um, then then we're somehow uh, not secure from that perspective. So take the grid security side of it out uh, and then look at the fuel supply situation. And, um, and so there's this idea that you can't price that. I agree with you, you can. Um, and then the third, which is even... Um, perhaps bigger and, um, and and also needs some sort of calculations brought to it is this idea that if you don't have a domestic nuclear power um, industry, then you don't have the U.S. as a major nuclear player, both in nonproliferation conversations and in the spread of conventional nuclear power around the world, and that geostrategically that has a real uh, and important cost. This is another one of those areas where nobody has done the hard calculations to figure out whether or not the best way to secure support that nuclear security imperative is just to provide whatever our weapons system or our naval reactor system, whatever it is they need to maintain or our nonproliferation regimes, whatever they need to be able to maintain their capability um, is, what, what's that dollar figure versus what's the cost of you know, maintaining a robust conventional nuclear energy system that can in turn support all these national security uh, functions that nuclear power plays with throughout the economy. And so I think in a way, this idea of, you know, putting a cost on freedom uh, that within the context of the energy sector is a way of signaling to all of those kind of issues that, um, they want to be able to say, hey, we're going to address them, but we don't need to necessarily look at economic efficiency when we do it. Yeah, I wish it were just more explicit. I mean, I wish it were framed uh, the way that you just framed it, because I think those are those are issues you can engage with, right? So the, the first one being, are we going to have insufficient fuel supply? That's that's basically the argument that the, the DOE made the first time around when they tried to send the NOPR to FERC that failed. And you know, on that one, so you've got one question, which is like, will shutting down a bunch of coal and nuclear sacrifice reliability on the grid? We can debate that. Um, but then there's a second, which is, well, is there a, a national security sort of, especially from an international politics perspective issue there? And, and I would contend the the argument is, is no, or I mean, the answer is no, because to the extent that we're shutting down coal and nuclear you know, it's largely being replaced by another domestic natural resource, which is natural gas. Um, so it's not like we're all of a sudden importing a bunch of oil for electricity generation from Venezuela when we shut down our 
or nuclear. And then the, the second one that you mentioned, you know, do we need a, a vibrant or at least existent uh, nuclear sector from a geopolitical perspective? I think that's an interesting one. I don't know the answer to that. I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about it, but I, I haven't heard anybody in the administration making that argument for why, for, for being the purpose for, you know, proposing rules to, to keep the coal and nuclear fleet alive. I haven't, I haven't heard that. There was, when you look at the addendum that was leaked, there's language in there about, um, sort of nuclear and national security imperatives. And so I do think it is part of the underlying, you know, sort of idea for all of this. But I, I, I get, I completely agree with your sentiment, which is, it would be really nice if you could unpack some of this because, um, when you unpack it and you look at these as sort of discrete items and you say, okay, well, what is it that we're going to protect for, right? Is there genuinely like a fuel supply reliability issue? And if there is, where is it? And what are the issues that need to get resolved related to it? Are they physical supply issues? Are they cyber related issues? What, you know, what are they? Um, then you can actually answer some of those questions and then you can actually do a cost to benefit analysis on what the best, um, answer to that, you know, to those issues are. And I think that the the lack of um, answers to those questions um, leads folks to believe that this is has more to do with sort of protecting um, aging and uncompetitive power generation assets, um, which is not an unfamiliar theme in different power markets around the country. Um, but, th- but that, that's really sort of the driver here. And so in a way, I think when you kind of throw it all under the freedom banner, it does a disservice to, um, the, the sort of actual merit of the dialogue that you might like to be having. I wanted to talk about the two ends of the spectrum in how people have historically approached this issue. On one end of the spectrum, you have energy conservation, and this is the approach embodied by Jimmy Carter, putting the sweater on, turning the thermostat down. On the other end of the spectrum, you have unleashing energy supply, and this is embodied in Ronald Reagan's approach, uh, George W. Bush, and now President Trump. And I see those two converging in a way. I think that the energy conservation message is shifting over to the energy supply message. And by that, I mean people talk about auto efficiency standards or building energy efficiency, um, not in terms of saving energy in this broader political context, but about unleashing capital availability for businesses to invest more in the American economy in terms of energy efficiency, or using auto efficiency standards to encourage automakers to unleash the next generation of automobiles, more lightweighted, more efficient, and uh, perhaps electric. And so I feel like the, the politics of conservation have moved over to more closely match the politics of unleashing supply. What's your take on that shift? That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever thought about it in those terms, but I I agree with you. Um, you know, I think that the, there's a couple of things that have changed about the sort of fundamental energy backdrop um, and the way in which energy feeds into not only the U.S. economy to but to lots of economies around the world that color our perspective on this. And I think first is, and a, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that there is fundamentally the idea that we have a scarcity of energy 
um, isn't something you hear a lot of today. There's certainly um, leads and lags in terms of you know supply chains and, and investment that you know yields uh, you know oil supply or gas supply or whatever the case might be that comes to market, and so you you can have market disruptions, but fundamentally people don't believe that we're operating in this world where you're running out of energy. And I think that that has done something to dampen some of the one must conserve because we're going to run out idea, which was a huge part of the conservation and the energy efficiency mindset. Now it's sort of, you know, like energy efficiency itself flipped on its head to be kind of an energy productivity argument, which is how can you utilize energy to, um, to yield the biggest economic outcome. And I think particularly in the United States, it's because most of the recent past for us has been about where does growth come from? You know, one of the large questions in the U.S. economy is how does it grow? How do we make growth? How do we make jobs? How do we make opportunities? And so if you're an energy supply source or an energy technology uh, or an energy you know, demand uh, option, you have to show that you can um, create that kind of economic growth and that job creation that you were talking about. It's much more about competitiveness. So I'm curious to speculate a little bit about where we might be headed in terms of energy independence, especially in the context of the energy transition that we talk about a lot. So notwithstanding the Trump administration's desire to prop up coal and nuclear, assuming that doesn't work and the trajectory that we are on remains the same, if not accelerating, meaning um, you know, sort of increasing decarbonization of the electricity sector, growth of renewable energy and battery storage and, you know, load control and all those kinds of things, electrification of uh, an increasing portion of the transportation sector and potentially some, some bits of the industrial sector and things like that. How does that likely change the energy independence equation, given the new set of resources that we're going to be using to, to power much of our economy? So I generally look at the trajectory of energy independence with regard to the United States and this larger idea of energy transition as um, as being one where, you know, if you think about, to a certain extent, things were a little bit easier under an administration that cared about the climate imperative because it gave you a solid lens through which um, to analyze different aspects of this question. And, and really, I mean, one of the ways of seeing this the most, like, most importantly is the way that we view China today versus the way we did under the Obama administration, right? And, and solar is one good example of this. Um, in that scenario, we were okay with um, China becoming very competitive in global solar markets because they scaled up a technology, helped drop the cost, and that was broadly better for the world in terms of achieving its objectives. I think if the global imperative is going to be about decarbonizing in the most cost-effective manner, then this idea of U.S. energy independence is going to get trickier and trickier over time because a lot of the technologies and sort of interconnectedness of the global economy um, and, quite frankly, information systems, a whole host of things, it just it looks like a much more interconnected world and much more interconnected energy systems than we have today. And while that may look a little bit different in terms of, you know, whether it's electricity security or renewable energy supply chain security issues, then it's going to be a little bit more 
complicated and and that's okay and I think that's okay I think that's because we both from a you know economic strategy perspective and an energy security perspective we understand that the climate imperative is the one that we're driving towards and that kind of puts this nice neat uh, chapeau over everything I think if that isn't the predominant imperative particularly it is not for this administration um, things are a little bit trickier. I think there's an idea that you utilize domestic energy resources to drive, um, you know, your your economic advantage. And for this administration, this has meant, you know, making sure that you're more supply side focused, that you produce more energy, and that you try and um, trade that energy. The, the complicated thing is that it's in it's in the veneer of this huge other conversation, which is about bilateral trade relationships, which are very um, when you look at what we're you know the sort of trade wars that we're um, entering right now, they're not necessarily good for a globally integrated energy supply chain, um, and that becomes much more complicated. And so if if the sort of you know more mercantilist trade uh, agenda that we're seeing happens, um, and and it, and is something you know that that is more a driver of the way things are going going forward than the sort of globalization tendencies we've seen over the last twenty years or so, um, then I think that means something different for energy supply security. In fact, I think that's a much less secure environment to be operating in because a lot of these sort of global networks of interconnectedness and and sort of diversity break down in that framework. So maybe I'm reading too much sort of normal uh, run of the day news these days. But um, I think that when I look at the sort of energy transition under a globalization and continued globalization and global trade framework, I see us as having more interconnectedness, but also more options. Whereas I look at this sort of zero sum game world that we're um, entering in right now, and I just see a lot more supply security problems, and and quite frankly, a less energy secure future. So the politics of energy independence are not going away, and for those who follow it, just repeating the term energy independence ad nauseum can be tiresome. But clearly, the the shifting market realities and shifting politics make this a really exciting topic, and. You know, the, the global energy transition that we're in the midst of will ensure that uh, we're talking about this concept for decades to come. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This was a, a really good conversation. Thanks for having me, guys. Sarah Ladislaw is a senior vice president and director of energy and national security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Shale, good conversation as always. Yeah, happy Fourth of July. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com or hit us up on Twitter. You can find me and Shale there and you can find the Interchange show there as well. And help us out. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Google's new podcast app. Find us on Stitcher, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks to everyone. Happy 4th to all our American listeners. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Greentech Media. Media.